I've got up on the screen behind me a classic like optical illusion type thing. Um, you may well have seen this before. And it's one of those pictures where there's two different things that you might see. So you might see a young woman like looking backwards, or you might see an old woman uh, sort of looking uh, to the left. And once you've seen one, sometimes it's then different to see, difficult to see the other. Um, the sort of like, if you're seeing the, the young woman, that's the eyelash and the nose and she's looking over there. Whereas if you're seeing the old woman, that's the, like a large nose and this is her mouth down here. Um, and so it, it's got both of those things in there, but you might look at that and immediately see the old woman. Someone else might look at it and immediately see the young woman. And the suggestion that it's the other one can seem um, a bit uh, strange at first. This one's a bit of a simpler one. You might see a vase, a white sort of vase, candlestick type thing, or you might see two black faces uh, looking at each other. This one, hands up who saw duck first. Hands up who saw rabbit first. Right, no, about half and half. <laughs> the, if you see a rabbit, then... I mean, that's the eye for both of them. This would be the face of the rabbit, and this is the ears going back, um, whereas obviously that's the, that's the beak of the, the duck there. And so um, a different perspective gives you a different uh, image that you see. Uh, moving to just think about perspective in general, you might have seen things like this before. You might have been to a place where you can take these sort of photos. Those two people are roughly the same height um, in real life, um, but the way that the room is arranged the position that they stand in relative to each other and the, the shapes on the floor uh, may distort our perspective of what the height is. Um, and it looks like one of them um, is much taller than the other one. Um, or this one, uh, those, the, the lines going across from left to right um, are perfectly horizontal, but they don't look like it um, when you look from straight on. In order to see them horizontal, I'm not suggesting that you do this. If you look at it from the side, like here, then you can see that they go in a perfectly straight line. So if you're looking at it from a different perspective, uh, you see a different sort of thing. Um, the point of that is just saying that it's an example of how we can see different situations differently or how looking at something from a different perspective uh, can change um, what, you, what you think you see or what you're experiencing. And what I want to suggest is the different situations that we go through in life are exactly like that, those sort of two-way pictures. Uh, you might say, oh, this is brilliant. You might think it's, it's terrible, but it's actually, what is your perspective on that? So the classic thing is, you've got a glass. Is it half full or half empty? It's the same thing for two people, but they might be looking at it with a different perspective, and that really shapes the way that they deal with it. Um, there's a brilliant story that um, I heard a few years ago, which was about uh, JFK, um, the, the sort of president of the, the USA in the, the early 60s, uh, visiting NASA, and that was obviously at the, the height of the space race, like trying to um, sort of just get a man to, uh, to the moon by the end of the, the decade. And he was walking around meeting people at NASA, and he met the caretaker, like janitor-type person who was sweeping the floors. He said, oh, what, what's your job here? And he said, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon, which I think is like a brilliant answer. And obviously he's doing a, a job there that's, that's important to the, the running of the organisation, but it would be easy for him to think, oh, people are doing the glamorous stuff over there while I'm just sort of cleaning the, the toilets. But he, his perspective was, my, my role here is, is vital in helping the, the organisation's mission of getting a, a man to the moon. His perspective um, was inspiring. 
Now, what we're looking at in Philippians is Paul, who wrote this letter, is in prison, but he's writing a letter that's full of joy. The word joy just is throughout the letter. Um, that's why we've uh, called the series Joy. Now, I wouldn't expect somebody who's in prison to be talking about joy, to be writing a letter full of joy. How is it possible for him to be writing a letter full of joy and speaking about uh, all the joy he's got? I mean, we'll look at it in detail in a minute, but just glance down at the end of verse 18, uh, where he says, because of this, I rejoice. We'll talk about what this is in a minute. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. It's full of joy. It's on page 1178. If you haven't already got it open, you might want to have a look at it. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at it in a minute, 1178. If I was in prison, I wouldn't be writing a letter full of joy, especially if I was in a, a prison in like the, the, the time period that, that Paul was there. But he's writing a letter that's full of joy because he's got a different sort of perspective. My joy is really linked to my circumstances, which makes it very unstable. And if something goes slightly wrong, then my joy is going to be knocked instantly. And so I want to experience the type of joy that Paul's talking about. It's like impenetrable joy. It's immune to the, the circumstances that he's going through. He's joyful whether he's in prison or whether he's out of prison. It's a joy that endures through any circumstance. And so uh, we're going to have a look at this uh, section today just to try and examine that joy and see how we can have that sort of joy ourselves. So I'm going to pick it up in uh, verse 12 of, of chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. We'll pause there, we'll pick it up, um, the rest of that sentence and the, the remaining verses in a minute. Um, the first thing that I think gives Paul this like impenetrable joy that's immune to his circumstances is that he finds joy in the proclamation of Christ. He says, what has happened to me, what he's referring to there is the fact that he's in prison. He talks about his chains a couple of times in there. What's happened to me, being in prison, he says, has actually served to advance the gospel. It's served to, to have Jesus Christ's name proclaimed to people. Now, his imprisonment should be shutting down the gospel or slowing down the spread of the gospel. Because Paul is like the most, or what, certainly one of the most uh, prolific people, that, certainly the most that we know about, the prolific person going around spreading that good news. He's going around from place to place, telling everybody, planting churches, encouraging those churches. Loads of people are hearing about um, the gospel, the good news about Jesus through Paul. And so if he's in prison, that should slow, slow down the progress of the gospel. And then secondly, as a byproduct, because he's the, the, the prominent guy and he's in prison, that should then scare other people to think, oh, well, if they're willing to lock him up, what's going to happen to me? 
And so it should shut him down and it should frighten the other Christians. And so it should be slowing down the advance of the gospel that he's in prison. But he's saying, what's happened to me being in prison has actually served to advance it. It's advanced it through Paul himself. So he says, it's become known now. All the palace guards know why I'm here. The people who were guarding him have now all heard about Jesus because Paul's telling them. Rather than shutting down Paul's spreading of the good news, it's now actually getting into the sort of Roman establishment. And I think it's brilliant that when you look at the end of the letter and he's just given a few uh, greetings, I mean, you can flip over if you want to chapter 4, verse 22. He's saying to the people in Philippi, all God's people here send you greetings, or God's people, those are Christian people, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. There's people who become Christians in Caesar's household. It hasn't shut down Paul's preaching. It's just a different audience. It's all the guards coming through and it's spreading that way. So it hasn't shut down Paul's preaching of the gospel. I don't know what that was. Um, and also, it hasn't actually frightened other people to stop preaching. It's had the opposite effect. So he says most of the other people, most of the other Christians, have become more confident because Paul's in prison and they're now proclaiming the gospel without fear. So this thing, Paul being in prison, should slow down the gospel, should shut it down, because he can't spread it, and other people won't want to spread it. Actually, the opposite has happened. Paul's still spreading it, and other people are spreading it all the more. The thing that should slow down the gospel is actually contributing to its spreading and advancing. And I mean, that sounds familiar, because that's Paul's life story itself. Like, he sets out to shut down, to clamp down on this news of Jesus uh, getting out, he sets out to arrest people, to shut down churches. He ends up becoming, as we said, the most prolific church planter that we know about, the person who's telling everybody about Jesus. It's his life story, it's no different now. Things that seem like they should slow down the gospel are actually contributing to its spreading. Now, he talks about preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, that sort of thing. Um, what does he mean by that? It's not um, necessarily what we first think of. When we hear the word preaching, we think about this, like doing a, a Bible talk on a, on a Sunday. Um, it can include that, but it's not just that. It's proclaiming the news about Jesus in a variety of ways. All right. Um, last weekend, there was different things happening with uh, different places. They did one in Hartlepool, um, of pro uh, the proclamation of uh, Charles as king. And basically, somebody just like, reads out an announcement, like um, Charles has become king. It's just announcing that good news. And it's the same here. The proclamation of Jesus is announcing what Jesus has done, who he is and what he's done. It can be done in a lecture or in a letter, like Paul's doing here. It could be done in a debate with a sceptical person. It could be done in a discussion with a friend. It's just people telling other people about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And that's what's happening here. Rather than being scared into silence by Paul's imprisonment, the other Christians are talking about Jesus freely. And that's how the gospel spreads. Now he then talks about these people who are uh, preaching Christ. And this is like this is the bizarre part of this passage for me. He says that some are doing it out of love for Paul and goodwill, but some aren't. Some haven't got good motives. Look at verse 17. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Some people seem to be, and I, I, I can't imagine really, I've thought, tried to think of examples, I can't think of how it would actually happen. But some people are like preaching Christ in a way that's trying to stir, stir up trouble 
um, for Paul or selfish ambition. Maybe they're trying to take his place or discredit him and, and take some of the, uh, the fame that he has. Maybe they're trying to work themselves into prominent positions like while he's out of the picture. Whatever it is, it's clear that they're talking about Jesus, but their motives aren't good for it. And so what I'd be saying is, like, yeah, just watch out for them, right? They might be saying this, but their motives aren't right. That isn't what Paul says. His response is unbelievable. He says, as long as they're preaching Christ, he's going to rejoice about it. His joy is found in Christ being proclaimed. And even if people are doing it from like dodgy motives, if it means other people are hearing about Jesus, then Paul's full of joy about it. Because he's finding joy in the message of Christ being spread and the message of Christ being proclaimed, then that gives him a totally different perspective on his circumstances. That's how he can have joy in prison. Because prison isn't a problem, it's an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. His absence from the, the local church there in Rome or from the church in Philippi isn't a problem. It's an opportunity for other people to proclaim the gospel. Some dodgy characters preaching the gospel from wrong motives isn't a problem. It means that more people are hearing the gospel. This glass, glass isn't half empty or half full. It's an opportunity for Paul to proclaim the gospel. Because his priority is the, the message of Christ gets out, more people hear about Jesus. The prison chains that he's in have lost their power. And... Actually, more than losing their power, they've become a tool for the gospel to advance. And that's part of the secret to this like, sort of impenetrable joy that Paul's got. He's in prison. He's got no certainty about what might happen. He might get out. He might end up executed. Some of the people who are actually part of the church are trying to stir up trouble from outside. Some of us have experienced that. Like when there's uh, conflict and um, just... Problems within the church, it can be so much harder than uh, with people um, outside the church. These people are supposed to be his, his brothers and sisters. They're supposed to love him, but they're trying to stir up trouble from outside. I can't imagine much worse of a situation, but Paul's rejoicing. And the secret to that is he's got that different perspective. His joy isn't found in getting free from prison because that may not happen. His joy isn't found in a lack of conflict in the church because that's not going to happen. His joy isn't found in him being able to do all the things he wants to do because he, he might not have much longer to live. His joy is found in the fact that people are hearing about Jesus. Would he like to get out? Yes. Like he talks about that in a minute. But he's joyful even if he doesn't. And that's not just something like you're saying and you think, oh, it sounds unbelievable. Like, this letter that he wrote um, would be read out. It was to the church in Philippi. It would be read out to the people in that church. Now, we read in Acts about when the church in Philippi started. And it, uh, we hear about a few people who heard the message from Paul and responded and became part of that church. And one of those people who would be then sat with the group of the Philippians listening to this letter being read was the guy who was the Philippian jailer that we read about in Acts. And so in Acts, Paul and Silas um, start uh, preaching and, and saying the message of Jesus. And a slave girl, um, who we told is demon-possessed, is following them. Um, and they heal this girl. And that causes problems with her owner. And so that stirs up a bit of trouble. And Paul and Silas get flogged and imprisoned. And we're told that they're singing songs to Jesus in the middle of the night. And there's an earthquake. The prison sort of doors open or whatever. The walls collapse like they're free and available to go. Now, if that, if that was me, if I'd been imprisoned for talking about Jesus, 
and then I'm singing to Jesus and then there's an earthquake and the door opens up. I'm taking that as a sign, like God's given me a sign, I'm out of here. Paul doesn't do that. That's what the jailer thought that was going to happen. And the jailer thinks all the prisoners have escaped. He's about to kill himself. And Paul shouts that they're still there. They tell this guy about Jesus. And the jailer becomes a Christian. His whole family becomes Christians. I was just imagining that guy listening there to this letter being read out when it arrives at the church in Philippi. That guy's listening and saying, right, this isn't just talk. Like, he's saying, I would be dead if Paul, what Paul's saying he wasn't true. He really does care more about the message of Jesus getting out than whether he's getting out of prison. Paul finds just deep, deep joy in, being, in Jesus being proclaimed to others. And there's nothing that can take that away. He just sees every circumstance, good or bad, as an opportunity for that to happen. And so then every circumstance, good or bad, is an opportunity for more joy. So that's a, the, the first thing that I think we see about Paul's joy, that he just takes great joy in uh, the message of Jesus getting out in the proclamation of Christ. Let's keep reading to see the, the, the second thing. So I left it partway through verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. So Paul doesn't just take joy in the message of Jesus getting out, the proclamation of Christ. Yeah, he just finds his joy in Christ. Like he takes joy in the person of Christ. He says that he believes because of their prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit that he's going to be delivered. And when we read that, I think, oh yeah, he believes that he's going to get out. And he does say that at the end. He thinks that he is going to get out and remain with them. But while our first thought is freedom from prison, when Paul talks about the deliverance there, he then goes on to just talking about, oh, that I'll have courage and strength to exalt Christ in my body, whether I live or die. He sees success in his life as lifting up the person of Jesus. And he realizes that can happen through his life or death. So either way, he's chuffed. I mean, he doesn't use the word chuffed. That's my uh, paraphrase. The classic verse there where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he's going to live... Everything about his life is just Christ, Jesus. Like, his life is Jesus. To die is gain. Like, gain what? Jesus. So it could just say, to live is Christ, to die is Christ. Whether he lives or dies, it's all about Jesus. If he dies, he's going to be in Jesus' presence. And he says he can't think of anything better. He says that, that would be better by far. If he's going to live, then he says that would be fruitful labour with the Philippians, pouring out his life for them to help them progress and find joy in their faith. When joy is found in Christ, like it is for Paul here, then his circumstances become powerless against that joy. If he dies, he's going to enjoy Christ. 
If he lives, we're going to enjoy Christ together. If he's released from prison, he's going to enjoy Christ with the Philippians. If he stays in prison, he's going to enjoy Christ's message going forward. He's not playing by the world's rules, and so the world becomes powerless against his joy. His joy is in Christ, and nothing can separate him from that. You sometimes hear people say, oh, I've got nothing to lose, and so I, I go for something. And that can be a, a powerful sort of motivator. I was just thinking about uh, a couple of years ago, I was watching a rugby match, Harlequins versus Bristol in the semi-final. And after 28 minutes, Bristol were leading 28-0. That's, that's quite a big score and very, very unlikely to come back from it. And you sort of saw that the Harlequins team think, well, we've got nothing to lose. And so they start like flinging the ball around and they ended up winning the match. You can have a, it can be a powerful thing to sort of think, well, I've got nothing to lose here, so I'm just going to go for it. That's not what Paul's saying here when he says to live as Christ or to die as gain. It's far, far better than saying you've got nothing to lose. It's saying you can't lose. What he's saying is whatever happens here, I can't lose. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's Christ. I can't lose. It's probably even better than saying I can't lose. It's that Jesus has already won. We're on our way to the victory parade. Paul's rejoicing that he, he can't lose. He's already won. If he's got Jesus, he's won. It's either the proclamation of Christ now or the presence of Christ when he dies. Both of those bring him great joy, so he can't lose. He can't help but win. That indestructible joy that Paul has is found because it's found in the person of Jesus. At the heart of being a Christian is that relationship with Jesus. Not what you do for him, but your relationship with him. Not just knowing stuff about him, but knowing him, knowing him as a person. So I think that's a secret to being able to be filled with joy in any circumstance, is that the cir you've got a different perspective. Those circumstances aren't um, where you're finding your joy. And so if they're not where you're finding your joy, then they're powerless to affect that joy. If joy is found in Christ, then every situation becomes an opportunity to experience that joy. So I just want to finish by thinking of a couple of things, like a couple of um, applications for us. Firstly, um, thinking about opportunities to, um, to proclaim Christ. Paul sees everything as an opportunity to proclaim Christ. That means that every situation, we know different, every situation in our lives, good or bad, can be an opportunity for us to, um, I'm saying proclaim Christ because it's the language he uses. We would just say like sharing the good news of Jesus. It's the same thing. Every situation in your life, good or bad, is an opportunity for that good news of Jesus to be shared. That can be through words, actions, listening, service, prayer, tears. Like there's a whole host of ways it can be shared, but it's an opportunity for that good news to be shared. And so we're going to pause in a moment and just pray that God would, if you're a Christian, open your eyes to see the opportunities around you. Paul just saw those opportunities everywhere. Sometimes I think I'm just going through my life with blinkers on. I know what I'm doing and what I want to do, and I'm missing the opportunities that he's given me. And so we want to pray that God would open our eyes to see those opportunities, but then also that the Holy Spirit would empower us that we would take those opportunities, that we would share that message about Jesus. We want to pray for boldness and confidence like those other people who saw that Paul had gone to prison, but rather than being scared, they wanted to tell people about him more than ever. And so in a second, just before I finish, we're going to um, pray for ourselves in that. 
But then also, just there's a, like a unique occasion for that happening tomorrow with the Queen's funeral. Now, I'm not a big like sort of events person. Like I, um, I don't think that the answer to everybody becoming a Christian is to all hear like a brilliant one-off event. Um, I think that often you see people becoming Christians um, through just life-on-life uh, -life sort of interactions, and that's what we big on in Grace Church. But when there are events, we want to take, we want to see those opportunities being used. Uh, to share that message of Jesus. Now, the Queen's funeral tomorrow, they're estimating 4 billion people around the world will watch it. That's absolutely like unbelievable. I can't comprehend that. And so the Archbishop um, of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is uh, preaching a, a message there at that funeral. And the Dean of Westminster, who's David Hoyle, is leading the, the ceremony. Now, the scale of that event is huge. The Queen's faith in Jesus has sort of been well publicised. And so I also want to pray for those two men in particular, that God would use them to proclaim the, the good news of Jesus to four billion people watching. I've just got another couple of things to say in a minute, but let's just pray uh, for ourselves to, that we would see and take those opportunities to proclaim Christ and, and, and pray uh, for the, the Queen's funeral tomorrow. Lord, we thank you for uh, Paul's example that we see of um, where he just sees everything as an opportunity for uh, your message to uh, be spread, for your message to be shared. That brings him joy because it's such good news. It's the best possible news for anybody in every circumstance. And so um, that's why it's joyful to, to, see, to see and to take those opportunities um, to share that message. And so I pray you would open our eyes to see the opportunities that you've given us not always how we expect it, doesn't always go exactly how we think, or the opportunities don't always look like we expect them to. And so we just pray that you would open our eyes to see those opportunities. And then we pray that you would empower us with the Holy Spirit, you would give us boldness and confidence to take those opportunities. That we wouldn't be ashamed to, to speak, speak about um, who you are, to speak about, to share our story, to speak about what you've done in our lives. We thank you that as we uh, look around uh, the room today and think about the people who make up this church, and the same is true for uh, churches up and down the country and around the world, um, that how we've seen uh, that message spread just from that, from, from people sharing that message about who you are and what you've done for them. And other people hear about it, and then other people hear about it, and that's how it spreads and grows. We're praying in particular for uh, the Queen's funeral tomorrow, which is like an unusually large-scale events. We thank you that the Queen is, was outspoken about her faith um, in you. And we pray that amid like all of the, the sort of ceremony and, and procedure that will be there tomorrow, that um, the good news of the hope that we have in you uh, for, for resurrection, the hope beyond the grave, uh, based on your death and resurrection, that that would be uh, clearly spoken and, and heard around the world. We pray for those people, David Hoyle and Justin Welby, who are preparing to do that um, because it's a pressurised sort of situation. Um, and we just pray that you would give them um, sort of uh, clarity of thought and, and uh, calmness to be able to uh, speak about you. Amen. Uh, just to finish my me, me, me final thing that I think we should do, so I think we should uh, pray that we see and take those opportunities to proclaim Christ. But then I, I think that the main point 
here of application of something that we should do is just to enjoy Christ, just to enjoy Jesus. Like, why was Paul's top priority to see that message of Jesus being spread? Because he loves Jesus. He can't think of anything better than knowing Jesus. And so that's why he wants the message to be spread everywhere. And that's why he's absolutely buzzing when the message is spread. Like, proclaiming the message of Christ without that love for Jesus is possible. It seems like some people are doing it, and Paul says it's, it's better than nothing. But ultimately, it's not sustainable. Because what we, pro- we proclaim the things that we love. We spread and we talk about the things that we love. As we've just said, every situation in your life, good or bad, is an opportunity for Jesus to be proclaimed. But it's not about saying, right, you are, yeah, I feel guilty that I haven't been doing that last week, and so I'm really going to try hard to do it next week. That's not what it's about. It's about being in love with Jesus so that we want to see and take those opportunities. I don't want you to flinch at that language of being in love with Jesus. Paul doesn't use that phrase here, but he says that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, far better than what? Than anything else you can imagine. Like if I say to you, my desire is to be with you, that's far better than anything else I can imagine, that means I love you. I mean, I'm unlikely to be saying that to you, but you get the idea. <laughs> His desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far greater than any other opportunity. That's the the language of love. He loves Jesus. That's why he finds joy in Jesus. He loves Jesus. It's not just that he loves Jesus. Jesus loves him. That's how Jesus feels about him. That's how Jesus feels about you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him. It's talking about Jesus here. So, for the joy set before Jesus... He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus there that that allowed him to endure the cross? It was adopting me and you into his family. It was welcoming us into that relationship that we were created for. It was his love for Paul. It was his love for me. It was his love for you. Paul endured prison because of the joy of Christ. Christ endured the cross for the joy of welcoming Paul home. Jesus endured the cross for the the joy of bringing me and you into his family. We just want to receive that and enjoy that. We just want to enjoy him. And then we find that that joy, when we're enjoying that message, that joy is impenetrable to anything the world can throw at you. Just enjoying Jesus is a joy that can never be taken away and it's going to last for eternity. Death can't conquer it. That's what Paul says in here. If you're not a Christian here today, you could receive that for the first time here today. You don't need to pass a test. You don't need to offer anything to Jesus. It's just receiving the gift of his grace and enjoying it. If you are a Christian, if you're anything like me, it's easy for life to slip and again and again, it will focus on what I'm doing and am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? And if you're a Christian, the same thing's true for us. We just need to receive his love and enjoy him. I'm just going to finish with a, a quote from a, a writer called Sam Storms about the, um, the, the joy, uh, finding joy in Christ and what it means to enjoy Jesus. And then after that, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll sing and rejoice in who he is and what he's done. He said this, It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that stokes the white-hot flame of passion 
for the plight of the nations and energizes the will of a person to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to preserve a marriage that is falling apart. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that empowers the human heart to overcome addictive behavior, sustains the soul in its fight against sin and temptation, and enables a weak and broken soul to persevere when a job is lost or a child rebels or a promise is shattered or a dream comes to nothing. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that encourages the timid and fearful heart to engage and confront the Christless culture in which we live with the good news of the gospel and the cross of Christ. And it is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that will sustain a church through adversity and bind the hearts of its people together in unity and love and mutual affection. How is God most glorified in us? Where and in what way is God's glory most clearly revealed? God is most glorified in us when our knowledge and experience of him ignite a forest fire of joy that consumes all competing pleasures and he alone becomes the treasure that we prize. Let's pray.